This program is brought to you by the Practicing Law Institute, a nonprofit learning organization dedicated to keeping attorneys, professionals, and accountants at the forefront of knowledge and expertise. There has been a great deal of speculation about what the securities regulatory and enforcement landscape will look like in the Biden administration. The Wall Street Journal's Dave Michaels and Andrew Ackerman recently reported that progressive groups are hoping the SEC under Mr. Biden will move swiftly to undo policy changes implemented by recently departed Chairman Jay Clayton. Some are hoping the SEC will take a lighter touch, and others hope the commission will forge ahead with new priorities. There's a lot to unpack. Professor Karen Woody from Washington and Lee and Professor Jim Park from UCLA will tell us what securities issues to watch in the coming weeks and years, today on Insecurities. Hello, and welcome to the Insecurities Podcast, helping you stay current on the latest securities, regulatory, and enforcement developments with a practitioner's perspective on the stories you should be following. As always, I'm Chris Ekimoff, and I'm here with my co-host, Kurt Wolf. It's good to be with you, Chris. Chris, as I mentioned up top, we are excited to have on the show today two professors who teach securities regulation and enforcement related topics. We have Karen Woody from the Washington and Lee University School of Law and Jim Park from the law school at UCLA. We are going to talk a little bit about what securities regulation and enforcement might look like in the Biden administration. I just want to note up top that all of this is in flux. Of course, President Biden just nominated Gary Gensler to be the next permanent chair at the SEC. More on that later. And it's worth noting, too, that the heads of every division at the SEC have stepped down, with the exception of the recently formed Division of Examinations. So there's a lot of turnover. We're going to see a lot of new blood at the commission. And there will, of course, be some new programmatic shifts or priorities that will take shape. But we're going to do our best to peer into the crystal ball today and give listeners a sense of what we should be watching in the coming weeks and months. Before we get into it, let's start by introducing our guests. First, as I mentioned, is Karen Woody. She is an associate professor of law at the Washington and Lee University School of Law. Karen's scholarship focuses on securities law, financial regulation, and white-collar crime. She has published works on insider trading, judicial deference to federal agencies, FCPA enforcement, and notably, conflict minerals. In fact, Karen testified for the U.S. House of Representatives Financial Services Committee regarding federal conflict minerals regulation. Karen, welcome to Insecurities. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. With us as well is Jim Park, a professor of law at the UCLA School of Law and the faculty director for UCLA Law's Lowell Milken Institute for Business Law and Policy. Jim's research examines the public and private enforcement of the securities laws, as well as federal regulation of governance and public corporations. He has written on the overlap, or tensions, between corporate and securities laws. He has also written on various SEC enforcement topics, the SEC's periodic reporting requirements, and, importantly for our discussion today, the SEC's role as regulator with respect to initial coin offerings. Jim's forthcoming book, The Valuation Treadmill, How Securities Fraud Became a Problem for Public Companies, will be published by Cambridge University Press in 2022. Jim, thanks for joining us on Insecurities. Thanks for having me, Chris. Looking forward to it. All right. We've got a lot of ground to cover today, and we couldn't have better guests to help us do it. 
But before we dive in, let's orient our listeners to the topics we plan to cover. As we mentioned up top, today we're going to talk about what securities regulation and enforcement might look like in the Biden administration. To that end, we're going to focus on topics that fall into three broad categories. First, what to watch for in terms of securities regulation, that is, action by Congress or by the Commission. Second, we're going to cover some straddle topics. And by straddle topics, we are thinking about issues that aren't clearly regulatory or enforcement only. They sort of exist somewhere in the space between regulation and enforcement and may, in fact, be both. And third, we're going to talk about what to watch for in terms of securities enforcement. That is, what types of cases or priorities will we see from the enforcement division in the coming years? And because we can't cover everything in those categories, we're going to end with a lightning round, during which we'll ask the professors to give us quick takes on a few hot topics in securities regulation. Let's get started. First up, what to watch in securities regulation. As I mentioned, we're thinking about action by Congress or by the commission uh, in terms of making new laws or new rules um, that will apply to regulated entities or public issuers. We talk a lot about the SEC's regulatory mandate on the show, which includes facilitating capital formation and ensuring investors have access to complete and accurate information about companies and the securities they offer and sell. In the coming months and years, there may be developments on the securities regulatory landscape relating to capital formation and disclosures. Jim, I know you want to highlight changes we might see with respect to how companies access capital. There are really two hot topics we want to touch on here. Special purpose acquisition companies, sometimes called SPACs, and direct listings. Let's start with SPACs. What are they, and how will they change the securities regulatory landscape? SPACs are a way of raising funds from public investors to make um, an acquisition. And the uh, interesting thing about the SPAC is that the investors in the SPAC and even the founders um, don't actually know what the acquisition will be at the time that the SPAC sells stock to the public. This seems uh, like a, a risky sort of venture, but in a sense, the way of thinking about it is you're betting on the management team of the SPAC. You're betting on their ability to identify uh, opportunities that you as an investor would not be able to identify on your own. Typically, the terms of the SPAC require the SPAC to make an acquisition of another company within two years. And once um, an acquisition candidate is identified, um, the investors have the right to opt out and redeem their shares if they don't want to participate in the acquisition itself. Typically, these special purpose acquisition companies have been uh, used to acquire private companies, uh, companies that are not yet uh, public. And so one way of thinking of a SPAC is, is it's a way of going public without using the IPO process, without uh, filing a registration statement, um, hiring underwriters and selling stock to the public. Um, a couple of uh, major companies that have gone public through SPACs are DraftKings, um, which is a fantasy sports and uh, betting company. Nicola, um, which is a zero emissions vehicles company, also uh, recently went public through an, an acquisition by a SPAC. You know, SPACs have raised a lot of money in the last year. They uh, raised uh, $82 billion, um, which was a six-fold increase from the prior year when um, they only raised about $13.5 billion. So investors are pretty enthusiastic about these investment vehicles. I think there are a couple of concerns about SPACs that the SEC might look at. One is the high fees that are 
charged by the founders of the SPAC. Um, they often get up to 25% of the company that's acquired, um, and that can be a very uh, substantial sum. Secondly, the performance of SPACs. It's uh, essentially you're betting on a company that has not been acquired yet. You don't know the identity of the company yet, of the company yet and uh, so there's a risk that investors could lose money in these types of uh, investments. There are there's a legal issue with respect to their ability to uh, issue projections. They have more ability and leeway to issue projections in the company that's going public through an initial public offering. And there's some evidence that some SPACs are using more speculative information um, in order to induce investors to uh, uh, to not redeem their shares. And so there have been a number of cases brought by the uh, Securities and Exchange Commission uh, relating to potential misstatements in various documents that are circulated before the SPAC actually acquires the company. Um, and so there's, a, there's potential for some regulatory intervention. I suspect, though, that there will also be some private ordering solutions where maybe there will be clearer disclosure of compensation agreements and maybe investors will demand a sort of a more reasonable compensation by uh, SPAC founders. It sounds like maybe if we have this conversation in a year, this may slide into the straddle topics. Um, as certainly when there are you know high fees and disclosure issues at play, that always seems to uh, to slide into the enforcement side of the house. But I guess we'll we'll have to see. Karen, I want to give you a chance. I don't know if you want to comment on SPACs. I, I do think they are very much the hot topic right now. It would be. I think remiss on securities regulation professors to not include this when they go through the different types of raising capital, because this one has certainly been a huge trend of late. But I, I think it's worth keeping in mind something Jim mentioned, which is there are some legal cautions, I think, for this, given the extra leeway that SPACs have down to you know, being able to make speculative type disclosures. And you would maybe see an increase in potential fraud. Um, SPACs, they have some origins in sort of more specious backgrounds than the blank check companies of old that we saw a lot of fraud investigations and enforcement actions into in the 80s. So it's not an entirely new concept. It's just that it has reemerged. So I agree that it very much would be a straddle type concept soon because I think we'll see some enforcement coming down on these on these companies. Kurt, you brought up direct listings as another opportunity for capital formation. Uh, direct listings, also known as direct placements or direct public offerings. Uh, we've heard a lot about those in the past few years, uh, mostly in the context of those Silicon Valley tech companies looking for an alternative to that traditional IPO path. Notably, the streaming content platform company Spotify went the direct listing route in April 2018, Kurt, more than 18 months before another seminal event in their history when they began hosting the Insecurities podcast in early 2020. Uh, I wonder what their investors think about which uh, event was more important. But before we delve too deeply into that, Jim, let's talk a little bit about direct listings and where you see this activity going from a regulatory standpoint. There's been some big developments with direct listings. You know, previous direct listings were about early investors uh, selling their shares, and uh, the companies themselves were not raising funds through the direct listing. But recently, um, the New York Stock Exchange uh, applied for a change to its rules that um, allows for companies to actually raise uh, funds directly through the direct listing process. 
And it's basically another alternative to an initial public offering. It's a way of going around that traditional method of, uh, of raising uh, capital, which has the comfort of a hundred years of experience and uh, a process we're all familiar with. And so I think the direct listing brings some potential dangers, um, especially when it's being used to raise uh, funds as opposed to being a mechanism by which early investors are selling their shares in, in what you would, would call a secondary offering. You know, in a traditional uh, IPO, as you all know, you have an underwriter, you know, an investment bank that uh, basically will buy the shares from the company, the issuer, and they do so at an IPO price um, that is set through negotiation between the underwriter and the company. And then the underwriter will sell those shares to their uh, investors at the IPO price, and then the investors um, will sell those securities in uh, secondary market trading. Uh, the difference with a direct listing is you don't go through the underwriter. You basically uh, just list your shares and they begin to trade. There is no intermediate uh, step where you have an underwriter that's setting the IPO price. And you know I think this is really only possible because you have uh, such high valuations of private companies. And um, there are a good number of examples of companies with high valuations that have done successful IPOs. And I think that might give markets uh, a bit more confidence that uh, some of the private valuations are a good starting point to value these private companies so that they can begin trading immediately without going through that intermediate process where the underwriter is setting the IPO price. Um, some of the benefits of doing a direct listing is that um, you save on the fees that you pay to the underwriter. Um, you don't have to pay the 6 or 7% of the IPO proceeds to the underwriter. You also um, address the problem of underpricing, where you know, there's uh, some concern that underwriters set IPO prices too low uh, relative to what the company could be getting on the open market. And so uh, companies uh, might uh, be leaving some money on the table by going through the traditional IPO process. Um, some of the downsides are that the underwriters play a pretty important role in doing due diligence on the company and assessing its value. They you know, go inside the company, they interview people, they look at documents, they survey institutional investors to make sure that the IPO price is reasonable. And without that intermediary, I fear that um, there's going to be less reliable valuations that are going out into the secondary uh, marketplace. Prominent example where underwriters did good work is the WeWork case, um, which you're familiar with from um, about a, a year or two ago, where you have a, a company with a very high private valuation, but as, as it's going through the IPO process, there's a recognition that the valuation is too high, and so the IPO fails. Um, so that's an example where investors save billions of dollars uh, because of the due diligence uh, process and the process of uh, surveying institutional investors, and that is is not as available with respect to the direct uh, listing. I'm not quite sure what the solution is. It, it looks like the New York Stock Exchange rule has been uh, approved up to this point, but I suspect that the SEC will be very closely monitoring the, the situation and trying to see how 
this goes. Jim, I like the way you laid it out as kind of a a double-edged sword. You know, there are benefits to go the direct listing route, uh, as well as, you know, potential costs. And you're probably one of the only people I know who has uh, credited the WeWork uh, fiasco as a success of the public markets. But I think when you take the lens of of due diligence there, I think you you probably have it right. But Kieran, want to grab your thoughts too on, on where direct listings fit into this capital formation discussion. It's a great question. I, I'm of the mind that this might be much ado about nothing. To me, a direct listing, um, there are only a handful of companies that really can take advantage of that. That's really an opportunity really for these unicorn type companies that don't need um, the backing of investment banks to do the initial buy and then also to do the roadshow to hype them up. These are companies, you know, Spotify and then about a year later, Slack had sort of the you know the name recognition that made investors feel like that was you know they didn't they didn't need any assistance really i think is is some of it and and i and i say that because there are certain companies that certainly teased out that they were going to go direct like an airbnb or doordash last year that retracted it ended up doing sort of the more firm commitment ipo with standard process I mean, that said, I, I have to say that just in the last few weeks, uh, another company has said they're going to go direct, and that's Roblox, which is an online gaming company. My kids are super into this, but that's one that, again, they have a lot of pride. They have a huge raise already, a lot of funding, a lot of recognition, a lot of users, and sort of people are aware of them. So I, I just don't see direct listing being viable for anyone other than these sort of one-off, you know, unicorn-type companies. But but I, I may be proven wrong. I was also reading in, in the New York Times, I think, this week that Roblox has benefited significantly from its role in, in keeping children entertained during the pandemic. So maybe that that unicorn status is relatively uh, new for Roblox as they look at a direct listing. But uh, we'll have to see how that plays out. Let's pivot a little bit. Uh, as we mentioned a few minutes ago, one of the SEC's core functions is to ensure that investors have access to complete and accurate information about companies and the securities they offer and sell. This is accomplished primarily through corporate disclosures. And it has been said that in some respects, all of our securities laws are really just about disclosures. And it's the one thing the SEC ought to be focusing on. One of the most contentious securities regulatory issues in recent years is the so-called conflict mineral disclosures rule. Karen, why don't you tell us where we are on conflict mineral disclosures and whether we should expect changes in the Biden administration? I feel very validated that you consider this one of the most contentious rules. It's still, I think, seen by many as sort of a fringe sort of one-off, but I think it's indicative of the larger umbrella, which I think we'll get to here, talking about um, ESG, non-financial disclosures that are are certainly going to be um, more in the forefront of the Biden administration priorities. So conflict minerals um, got baked into Dodd-Frank in the very end as a miscellaneous provision and required companies that had products in the stream of commerce to disclose if any of those products contain one of you know four minerals uh, from the Democratic Republic of Congo. So just in my description, I think you can already realize that this is a sort of a niche area, but that ended up and becoming a, a big undertaking in terms of supply chain due diligence that numerous companies from sort of a wide swath of industries needed to to undertake. It was you know, roundly criticized when it was passed as sort of being a foreign policy type effort, you know, dealing with sort of violence in Congo that is related to the mining of these minerals. 
that didn't have much to do with investors or certainly what investors cared about. And in fact, when I first started writing about conflict minerals in 2012, 2011, that was part of my argument, which is this is immaterial information. And so it's it's not the role of securities law to, to, to force companies to disclose things that really don't impact or don't affect investors. And, you know, that was 2000. 12. And the world, I think, has very much changed since then in terms of what, you know, how broad the scope is of what we consider material about or what we care about. We really have seen the rise of this idea of both stakeholder theory, but also ESG information, corporate social responsibility efforts that um, have come to be very immaterial to certain investors. Um, and I think that is where I would place conflict minerals as sort of the the canary in the coal mine, maybe about of, of where ESG is coming from. We thought it would go away entirely. It certainly got litigated uh, by you know people who took Dodd Frank apart provision by provision, and its sister provision, um, which deals with disclosures required by companies in the extractive industries and any payments they make to foreign governments. That did get um, thrown out, and the Trump administration um, vowed to sort of be done with both of these things. The SEC didn't have a lot of effort or funding behind either of those provisions, and so it, it died a little bit on the vine in terms of enforcement. But, um, but I, like I say, I think it is it is something that is signaling where we're moving toward, and these kind of things are going to come back into and into the focus of, of priorities, both at, maybe at the agency, but then also certainly in this administration. And, and as I say, I think because it could fall under the broader umbrella of ESG disclosures. Karen, in 2013, you authored a paper in the Fordham Law Review titled Conflict Minerals Legislation, the SEC's New Role as Diplomatic and Humanitarian Watchdog. And you've testified related to conflict minerals, as we talked about. Now, I'm interested as we kind of shift into that discussion of ESG or environmental, social, or in corporate governance related disclosures, do you see this as the SEC's continuing role as diplomatic and humanitarian watchdog? The way I framed it in my earlier response was to say that this doesn't matter to to investors and, and therefore it's immaterial information. And I think the shift of this Coming into the lens of what investors care about now that we have such a push for these ESG climate change disclosures and other types of information that investors want to know about companies that are not tied to financial stability or health of the investment. So that in itself is a bit of a shift from sort of the very um, classic understanding of what you need to disclose. How sound is my investment? We now want to know how good these companies are or not. And so I do think that the SEC, therefore, will have a role in it because if it falls under the sort of ambit of being material information, that is something that the SEC is is charged with um, sort of ensuring is being disclosed. And so I think your focus on the agency role in that is is maybe a, a slightly different lens than what I initially took, which is do investors care about this? And if investors care about it, then it, it becomes sort of material to a number of people. My argument in that paper was that it, it was not material. And so if we get to a place where Congress starts telling investors what should be material through um, sort of statute, that that seemed backwards to me. But I, like I say, I think I think we've now live in a different a different place in some ways, and people really do care about where um, companies are putting their money. We certainly 
you know, you can analogize this to sanctions and sort of where where is the supply chain going through? What sort of what places are we not willing to invest in or to have our, you know, sort of a name be attached to? And so I think all of that is is certainly going to come back to the forefront in the Biden administration in the SEC's priorities. Jim, do you agree on the view of ESG generally and then on the commission's role in reviewing that? I may have a slightly different uh, viewpoint than Karen's, but I do uh, agree with her that conflicts disclosure is best understood as a type of ESG mechanism. And I I think there will be a fairly heavy push to increase ESG disclosure um, in the Biden administration. Fundamentally, I think there's a question of what you view as the primary purpose of the securities laws. Um, Is it Um, about economic value, or can it be about other issues that investors care about? Um, I would lean towards more of an economic um, interpretation and, you know, have have said so, I think, in some of my earlier work. But I do recognize that um, the world is changing. And um, I think that there is a greater demand for uh, this, this type of information. I think I'd be a little bit more on the conservative side as to um, the types of ESG information that the costs of providing it um, are, are low enough so uh, relative to the benefits and, and the benefits are clear enough so that there's a strong case for for providing it. And then just to raise up a level or two here, you know, Jim, I know you're often focused on disclosure obligations. And do you see any changes to the overarching or, or the quarterly disclosure framework coming in, in the months and, and years ahead? I feel like momentum for any changes has sort of petered out to some extent after uh, the SEC studied the issue. Um, I don't really see it as being uh, something that would be prioritized by the uh, new administration, but it, it's uh, still an issue which I think is uh, very important with respect to the way uh, corporations are governed. There's a significant amount of pressure to deliver uh, quarterly results, and that is you know, a primary reason, I think, why companies commit accounting fraud and uh, do other things to uh, manage uh, their earnings. And so I think that, you know, there are certainly things that um, the administration should consider in order to counteract some of those pressures. And one of the things I've proposed is I think there needs to be more disclosure about about, uh, quarterly projections and the basis for those projections. I don't think there's enough information out there for investors to uh, assess the the validity of uh, uh, projections. And so, you know, if I were advising the SEC, I would uh, put that on the agenda, but I, I, I don't necessarily see that as being a priority for this administration. So far, we've been talking about how companies raise capital and what disclosures companies that access our capital markets owe investors. We want to transition and talk a little bit about some of the straddle topics we raised up top. And those, again, are sort of the ones that aren't exactly purely regulatory questions, but they're they're not necessarily only enforcement questions. And so, what we want to talk about here are digital assets. We're thinking about cryptocurrencies and initial coin offerings or ICOs and insider trading. Jim, there are a number of open questions about the extent to which the SEC has authority to regulate cryptocurrencies, or maybe the circumstances in which they ought to regulate cryptocurrencies. In the Biden administration, what should we expect to see in terms of ICO regulation or enforcement? The past uh, administration 
uh, filed a very interesting case in December against a company called Ripple Labs. And they um, created, they're the creators of a cryptocurrency called Ripple, which is the third most valuable after uh, Bitcoin and Ether. Uh, Bitcoin has a total value of $682 billion. Uh, Ether has a value of $156 billion. And Ripple is uh, as about $13 billion, at least at its current price. And, and I think just the high values of these uh, cryptocurrencies indicates to me that um, there's going to be some activity in this space, um, that these digital currencies have proven that they have some staying power, that investors uh, value them highly. And I think the, the wealth that's been created in this industry is going to be generative and create additional projects that will try to raise funds in different ways that may run afoul of SEC regulation. I, I see there's a lot of potential for activity in this space. Now, with respect to the Ripple case itself, it does, in my view, represent a more aggressive approach to SEC enforcement uh, for a number um, of reasons. Um, one is that uh, this is a challenge basically to a sale of digital tokens that happened in 2013. Um, that's seven years ago. Um, that's also uh, four years before the SEC made it clear when it published something called the Dow Report that it considered these uh, cryptocurrencies to be uh, securities in certain uh, circumstances. Um, and so they're going back and they are you know, challenging uh, offerings that happened you know, six or seven years ago. Um, it's also different than past enforcement cases because um, rather than uh, stopping a project that is just going underway, this is challenging a pretty well-established uh, cryptocurrency. And so it's different than you know, cases like uh, you know, NAC Foundation, for example, this past summer um, was an SEC enforcement case where uh, the organizers, which included Jack Abramoff, the infamous lobbyist, um, they raised about $5.6 million to create the new Bitcoin. They made some misrepresentations when they were raising these funds, saying that government agencies were lining up to use it. And uh, so the SEC basically shut that down. But you know that's, that's a far cry from a $13 billion currency that's been there for seven years, right? And so um, to see the SEC go back and sort of challenge uh, something that um, has been pretty well established, especially given some of its prior statements that um, some of the cryptocurrencies like Ether and Bitcoin are no longer securities, to me, that's a very interesting development. Karen, what do you think? Do you have any expectations for what the, the next, I don't know, several months or, or a couple of years might look like in terms of regulation and enforcement of cryptocurrencies? Well, what I find so fascinating about this issue and this topic is it goes back to something even Jim mentioned in an earlier answer, which is, you know, what is it we are worried about? What is the role of securities law? And in this situation, it's like you have this sort of new technology, this new thing that we're trying to figure out, can this fit under our old definition and therefore be enforced the way we have been enforcing this? Or is this something so different and new that we need new legislation or new some new rules around this technology? I mean, I, I think it's ironic. You know, they're still marching through the elements of the Howey test to see if these things meet the elements of being a security. But 
you know, that's a hundred year old case at this point. So it's sort of, it's fascinating that this, it's such a mix of old and new and trying to sort out, you know, where do we, how, how do we classify this thing? And so in terms of going forward, there's so much money um, in Bitcoin and in, in these places and now that I don't think the SEC is going to give up and walk away because there, there is a real risk here of, of if this thing, if the house of cards starts to fall, then, you know, there'll be a lot of people looking for answers. So I, I imagine there'll still be sort of significant pressure or certainly eyes on that, on that space. I have to say, I, I love that answer. And it's something that we're not talking a lot about on this show, though we're going to hit on it again later. But things uh, in our markets are changing rapidly, whether it's fintech innovation or new types of investment opportunities, new types of products. And you know, the SEC and other regulators aren't necessarily keeping up. The regulatory framework that exists doesn't necessarily work perfectly for these new types of, of products. Um, and so it's, it's fascinating to watch right now. And, and Karen, I think, it, I think the point is absolutely right on in terms of, you know, how should we even be thinking about these, these types of, of securities potentially? Uh, and does how even make sense anymore? As a non-attorney, there's something I've learned, uh, you know, working with you, Kurt, over the past year on this podcast, as well as in my day job, uh, is that attorneys love to rely on a precedent case, right? And so that how we test, you know, you just, you really struck a chord with me, Karen, and, and reminding me that although it's kind of newly applied to the cryptocurrency space, it's a century old. Uh, so maybe it's time to, to update and or at least reconsider that. And pivoting a bit to to an area that doesn't really have that that precedent or that leading uh, case's definition is, is that kind of nuanced area of insider trading. Uh, and this is where, Kurt, you talked a little bit about that juxtaposition between regulation and enforcement. For those of you who need a little bit more of a deeper dive into insider trading, you can go back and listen to our Insecurities Podcast, Episode 4, where Kurt and I do our best to cover a broad topic. But we've heard a lot of discussion about insider trading during this pandemic, including a reliance on the 10B51 plans, uh, the Stock Act as it relates to Congress and proposed legislation to codify the elements of an insider violation. Karen, you published a paper entitled The New Insider Trading with the Arizona State Law Journal in 2019. Hopefully for our listeners, that's not a playbook for how to accomplish insider trading. But joking aside, tell us what insider trading regulation and enforcement might look like in the next several years under a Biden administration. Oh, gosh, that's a great question. Insider trading has long been very dynamic and in ways that you think um, sometimes in ways that are counterintuitive. So I think there are three sort of major areas and they're overlapped among them, but you sort of, you recognized all three. And what the first is, I think the press that we saw on congressional insider trading as related to confidential briefings related to the pandemic. Obviously that was very important, even as it came down to people involved in the the Georgia Senate runoff, who had been, you know, had, had allegedly traded based on information they learned from confidential briefings by virtue of being members of Congress. So a number of people have weighed in on um, whether or not this is okay, whether the Stock Act that prevents that is robust enough. There certainly are other professors and, and regulators who have, have given their thoughts about how we make the Stock Act have uh, more teeth or and or require other restrictions on trading by members in Congress, like a blind trust or something that very much would um, hamstring any any trades done while while being a sitting member of Congress. I have to imagine that will likely come via a legislative fix of sorts. I can't I'm, the current law as it as it stands 
it would be tricky for some of these prosecutions for members of Congress to be successful, as we've already seen, sort of the few that have been have had a very tricky and, you know, certainly a hard a hard go at this. Um, that's one area. Obviously, the congressional insider trading is, is one. The other area, which is related, is just a broader uh, legislative fix for insider trading sort of writ large. And that is because some of the case law, the common law, which really has dictated the contours of insider trading for years, but certainly since Justice Powell in the 80s, we have seen sort of the elements of insider trading be enumerated and clarified through the courts as opposed to being done through Congress or through statute. So insider trading is still prosecuted under Rule 10b-5, which doesn't use the term insider trading at all. It's sort of a very nebulous type statute. But from this statute has come sort of all manner of securities fraud, including insider trading. So there has been a push to clarify it um, legislatively and then via statute. Um, that has been reinvigorated of late. Preet Bahara had a task force set up in order to sort of make recommendations. There was a bill that passed the House in late 2019 um, that Jim Hines pushed through. And we haven't seen that yet um, come up on the Senate side, I don't believe. The trick with that, um, I think some of the issues with that legislation from the drafts that I have seen is that the the statute actually tracks what is the existing common law in through that is made through court cases. So it's actually not as clarifying as I think many people would want. It sort of keeps the same tests that courts apply anyway, just by virtue of applying um, the precedent that exists. And that is, I think, where we have seen a lot of tricky scenarios, certain cases that look a lot like insider trading, but they don't meet certain elements. That is the sort of crux of what my last article is about, which is the third area I want to talk about, which is what I called the new insider trading. And that is actually based on a case that just went up to the Supreme Court and they decided on Monday to send it back down to the Second Circuit. And the gist of this sort of very broadly is that, you know, uh, under the same set of facts, a jury was presented with a case of insider trading and they charged it under 10b-5, sort of the standard way to charge insider trading. But they also charged it under a criminal provision, which was a general securities fraud provision. And given that, the jury looked at both of these things and they acquitted on 10b-5 by saying, you know, the elements you have to show for to, to make out an insider trading claim under 10b-5 are, are, are pretty substantial. But to get this other one, this criminal law this um, that just says, hey, you need an intent um, to deceive and have, have it be related to trades and securities are like, that seems easy. We'll, we'll convict on that. And so it's an interesting situation where we have an, a jury finding it much easier to convict in a criminal sense rather than in the civil side. To me, it seemed like we might be done with the sort of 50, 60 years of precedent through the courts of insider trading. And people might be able to just simply prosecute it under a general securities fraud claim. There's much more to talk about on that case. It got, like I said, it got remanded back from the Supreme Court on Monday. Who knows really what, what, where this is going? I do think maybe the best way for this going forward will be legislatively, but we'll see how clear the the statute might actually be after all. Kurt, I know every time we talk about insider trading on the podcast, I think the winds are blowing in a different direction. So, Jim, what's your take on on where insider trading might be heading in the coming years? 
Wow, it's um, it's a tough question, and it relates back to our discussion of the regulation of cryptocurrencies and when they're securities, right? There is a tendency for uh, the SEC to regulate through enforcement. That's sort of a uh, commonly used uh, phrase and develop law case by case. And, you know, the disadvantage of doing that is the law is not clear. Um, and so we've seen um, movement towards passing a, a statute, as, as Karen has noted, but looking at the draft of the statute, there are, is still a lack of clarity even within the statute. And so I am not optimistic that you'll get complete clarity on these issues. Um, but I do think it's a, it's a very important uh, area. And I think to see the um, issue with the Congress so widely publicized will perhaps provide some uh, basis for reforming at least uh, the trading practices of people in Congress. Um, at least that's, that's the hope. Jimmy, you've hit on you know one of one of our favorite phrases we hear it all the time, and it maybe is how we should have described the straddle topics at the very beginning, which is this notion of regulation by enforcement, right? It's sort of it's it's not one thing or the other. And I think it's a really good segue for us to touch on our last big bucket or our last big topic, which is what to watch for in securities enforcement. Karen, a few minutes ago, you mentioned that we might see a stock act with, uh, with quote, more teeth. Um, we've heard that we might also see a regulation best interest. Uh, Chris put me on the board. A regulation ding, best ding. interest uh, with, with more teeth. And, and we've heard this concept um, in a lot of conversations about what the enforcement environment might be in the Biden administration. I, I think time will only tell how aggressive the enforcement division will be or, or what the trajectory of the enforcement division will look like. Today, we're not going to focus on that. We're not going to make any any guesses about you know how many cases are they going to have next year? Is it going to go up or down or, or, or whatever? Instead, we want to touch on a few particular topics uh, that, that are of, of interest um, to Jim and Karen, and which I think are going to be things that we ought to be focusing on over the next couple of years in the Biden administration. Uh, so, we We've picked three, FCPA and internal controls cases, earnings management, and this notion of puffery as a defense to securities fraud allegations. So we're going to start with FCPA. The FCPA, of course, has two components, a prohibition on bribing foreign government officials and a requirement to maintain accurate books and records, which includes a requirement to design and implement effective internal controls. In recent years, the SEC has increasingly leaned on the FCPA's internal controls provisions when they can't prove the substantive bribery, and in some other interesting contexts as well. So, Karen, this one's for you. Uh, should we expect to see changes in enforcement of the FCPA's internal controls provisions? This topic gets to sort of marry all of my interests, so I get to talk about both insider trading, internal controls, all the things that come back under this one questions is great. The FCPA is, I mean, it's the gift that keeps on giving to prosecutors and the defense bar and everyone. It just, it, I don't think that's going to go away. Um, the administration certainly will not change that. And we didn't actually see much of a decline in enforcement in the Trump administration, despite him saying very clearly that he wanted to be done with the FCPA entirely. Um, we still saw record-breaking fines in, in FCPA enforcement. So it's it's obviously it's a very it's a it's a very hot you know dynamic area. Um, but one that is getting additional attention is this internal controls provision. 
that came from this the FCPA and came out of that legislation, but is more recently being used under sort of non-bribery type enforcement actions. And that's where I think it's a very, could be a very powerful tool. So the internal control provision, um, like I said, had its genesis in the FCPA, um, but there have been, now we see cases that aren't linked to uh, foreign bribery that they're, they're charging this, um, this provision of the FCPA for. So the recent example is the Andover case from last fall. Uh, and that is one that did have to do with insider trading, but they charge it instead as an internal controls um, violation. So there was a, it was a settlement that they had done, um, SEC and Endeavor Reach, but it dealt with this idea of the company doing a, a series of stock buybacks pursuant to their 10B51 plan. And so even though they said, hey, the company, when it initiated the 10B51 plan, um, it, it at that time, did possess sort of material non-public information. So it was a, a, a question of, wait a minute, you're trading based on inside information. But yet the charge that the SEC brought was not related to insider trading. Instead, they, they really zeroed in on these companies' accounting controls and found them to be inadequate to ensure that they could comply with the stock buyback authorization you know, so basically they're saying your own internal policies you're not following here. So we're going to bring an internal controls charge based on this sort of violation of your 10B51 plan and this insider trading activity. But again, we're using this internal controls as sort of this catch-all blanket provision here. Um, I think this is a little bit problematic. I wrote a paper about this before, and that paper only really dealt with FCPA type actions, I didn't really think through that they would use it for non-FCPA actions as well. But I wrote a paper called basically No Smoke and No Fire um, and, and used internal controls as like, if, if there is no bribery and there's no actual violation of a books and records provision, then, then the fact that uh, you might not have robust internal controls, can that in itself be, can be, be enough for, for you to face an enforcement action? And it's clear that the answer is yes. The SEC is going to come after you, even if, you know, your smoke alarm doesn't go off. You know, if there is no smoke and no fire. So we're going to make sure your smoke alarms are in place because if you not, don't have them, like that alone is, is problematic. And so the fact that this is now being used outside of bribery cases is, is definitely, I think, that's an area to watch. Let's get back to some of the good stuff out there. Questionable accounting applications. Uh, there have been a few cases in the past year in which the SEC has alleged that companies improperly reported their earnings. For example, to meet or exceed analyst estimates. Listeners should feel free to go back to episode 23 of the Insecurities Podcast titled A Gap in your financial reporting, that's GAP with two A's, to brush up on accounting issues in general. Uh, our most recent example we'll discuss today is in December 2020, uh, there was an enforcement action against General Electric in which the company agreed to pay $200 million to sell SEC charges that have misled investors by describing profits without explaining that one quarter of profits in 2016 and nearly half in the first three quarters of 2017 stemmed from reductions in its prior cost estimates. Now, Earnings management is a loaded phrase, but it's really an offshoot of broader accounting issues in that certain circumstances, estimates and judgments made by management are construed as purposeful to report earnings in a particular fashion, whether up or down for a reporting period. So, Jim, let's talk a little bit about the GE case and what we might expect to see in terms of SEC enforcement related to earnings management or its related disclosures. 
Well, Chris, it's a really um, interesting case. As I mentioned before, I've been working on a book on securities fraud in public companies, and uh, there is a chapter on General Electric that uh, will discuss this case. That's a great teaser, Jim. We'll have have our listeners waiting to pick up the book. (laughs) Yeah, it's a nice opportunity to plug this book. You know, GE, as, as you know, is an iconic company for a long time over the 1990s and part of the 2000s. The company was known for always meeting its quarterly projections. Uh, Even in the 90s, there were questions about its methods. And there was sort of an open secret that the company used um, what might be described as earnings management techniques. They had this financial subsidiary, GE Capital, that was able to make loans or buy receivables in order to uh, boost revenue for a uh, division, you know, so the company could uh, make its uh, forecasts, and and this was sort of well known, at least among sophisticated investors. And 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 I think why was GE doing this? I think you know part of it was to create the perception that it's a company that had superior managers who were able to come up with that extra penny or two in um, earnings to uh, to meet the quarterly uh, number, and the hope was to convince investors that if you buy GE stock, you're not going to have significant losses. You're going to have steady growth over time. The question that I think uh, is has been raised, when does earnings management that does not necessarily involve a clear violation of generally accepted accounting principles, when is that uh, punishable? When do we consider that to be fraudulent? If you think about the core you know, accounting fraud cases, the WorldComs, um, Xerox, other cases that we saw in the late 90s and early 2000s, uh, they typically involved some uh, violation of accounting rules. And so there's a question of, well, what happens when you use just earnings management that uh, may not clearly violate an accounting rule? In the GE uh, settlement, you you know hear a story about its power and power and insurance businesses, which suffered uh, billions of dollars of losses in 2017, was which resulted in a collapse in the company's stock price. And um, if you look at the SEC's complaint, some of the conduct that was targeted, um, you could argue, did not really involve clear accounting violation. It's more of a disclosure violation, I guess, an accounting violation. And so it's it's very interesting to see this being the target of SEC enforcement and. Uh, the size of the penalty is what really raised my eyebrows, right? $200 million is, is a lot of money. It's uh, comparable to some of the larger uh, SEC penalties for accounting fraud that have been levied. And, you know, some sort of insider baseball insight into the GE complaint is it actually does not allege a violation of Rule 10b-5. As your listeners may know, 10b-5 is the provision you use uh, when you believe there was fraudulent intent um, but instead, the complaint only alleges violations of 17A2, 17A3, um, which are provisions that do not require the showing of fraudulent intent. This kind of suggests to me maybe a new strategy for tackling earnings management, which is that um, you more aggressively will uh, target a management that does not clearly violate specific accounting rules, and uh, you impose real penalties, uh, which I think is something the SEC um, has not really done so much up until this particular 
uh, case. All right, Karen, let's stick with the disclosure theme, sort of. So courts are taking different views of public companies' arguments that statements in periodic reporting documents are mere, quote, puffery. This concept has played out in a case against Goldman Sachs, but we've also seen it in cases involving ESG-like pronouncements by public companies. This feels like an evolving space. Karen, can you tell us more? What should we expect in in these sort of puffery cases? The Goldman case that is before the court this term is actually a a securities class action um, sort of in the civil realm, so not related to the SEC. But what's interesting is that the SEC enforcement action is what sort of triggered this entire sort of follow-on plaintiff's class action, which is typical. So the basis of the claim uh, against Goldman was, you know, that Goldman had falsely represented that it had behaved with honesty and integrity toward its clients, sort of very boilerplate blanket language. And when the SEC brought an enforcement action related to its CBOs and sort of other um, synthetic products, they pointed out there were some undisclosed conflict of interest. Basically, this idea that they said, hey, we will be an honest company and act with integrity, that was the misrepresentation upon which this case is is grounded. So that obviously raises some alarm bells um, for people. I do think that this type of litigation, this this, um, scrutiny under those kind of comments is, is going to make everyone more nervous about what they put in their public filings. Um, and the idea that just publish, publishing some seemingly boilerplate statements and, and, and any sort of market reaction or not, or even just an SEC enforcement action of some sort could you know, open the doors to a significant amount of follow-on litigation. I, I, I think this is going to be particularly problematic right now when we see a number of companies issuing statements, whether they are boilerplate or not, about things related to the pandemic, you know, making, you know, talking about how their practices of cleanliness or, you know, think about people in the airline industry or the hospitality industry or other industries that have made sort of these assurances to people now that, you know, should someone have gotten sick, there could be such such potential sort of Pandora's box on on what companies are saying, even if it seems sort of like glowing, just positive things, as you say, maybe just considered puffery, but that that could be the basis for for any type of of litigation. So I I do think this might be something that we should certainly keep an an eye on. Um, Whether or not the SEC will be taking a hard line, I'm not sure, but certainly the the plaintiff's firms, I think, in the wings will, will be doing that. All right, guys. Well, we've covered uh, a ton of ground today, but as always in our in our insecurities podcast vein, there's always more to talk about. So we've organized a, a quick lightning round of hot topics in the securities regulatory and enforcement space. Uh, hopefully, we can get some quick knee jerk reactions from both of our guests today. Kurt, why don't you kick us off with our first topic? There's really only one place to start, right? The chairman. So it was recently confirmed that President Biden will nominate former CFTC chairman Gary Gensler to become the next permanent chair of the SEC. So here's your chance. Any thoughts or reactions to the Gensler nomination? Jim, let's start with you. I think he's a a great, great choice. Um, He was very tough on banks in writing derivatives regulation. Um, At the same time, he has a background working on Wall Street. And so I 
I think it'll be interesting to see what his position is on ESG disclosure. And I uh, would would guess that's something that he'll be questioned on uh, quite a bit. You know, given his industry background, I, I think he might be somebody who's sort of in the middle um, of the issue. So I think he's a very interesting and good choice for uh, the position. Karen, your thoughts? Yeah, I'd agree. He's certainly um, been in and around Washington for a long time, and so and so knows knows the lay of the land. I my first thought when I saw this was that it, to me it certainly made the Venn diagram of what the CFTC and what the SEC cover seem to be even more closely related. Certainly, as we they fight over jurisdiction on derivatives and sort of other space, and so that to me struck me as an interesting uh, a link that those two agencies might have a lot more in common and certainly someone can jump between the two. But no, I, I think he will, he will probably have a very steady hand. This doesn't seem to be his sort of first time handling, you know, uh, an important agency. All right. For longtime listeners, you know, one of our favorite phrases, when the tide goes out is where you see where the bodies are buried. Uh, related to COVID fraud on several of our episodes, guys, our guests have mentioned that we should expect a wave of COVID related fraud cases, whether they be pump and dumps, disclosure fraud, triple P related issues. But we haven't really seen it yet. Here we are 10, 11 months into the pandemic. Karen, what do you think we should expect from COVID issues? It's a good question. It is surprising we haven't seen that much. Um, I think there have been other things that keep getting certain, certainly people's attention. I would imagine some of this would, would be, again, a split between DOJ and the SEC. But in terms of um, SEC enforcement on COVID-related, it, to me, it, it's, it, it harkens back to how you know the SEC even got created, sort of this idea that there are these snake oil salesmen selling cured, you know, like the ideas of why we set up the structure of securities laws actually seem to be analogous to this exact time of like, you know, people are raising money to have some miracle cure. Like the SEC is going to look at that before people get separated from their money. So I, I'm surprised we haven't seen more, um, but I, I, I don't think it's because there's been any lack of opportunity for fraudulent offerings or fraudulent companies to to try to take advantage of people's fear and of, of this, you know, the pandemic situation. We'll be watching those vaccines for snake oil as an ingredient. But Jim, what do you think about the COVID fraud landscape? Similar to Karen, I'm surprised that there haven't been more more cases. Um, it does seem there have been a handful of, of cases of, of companies who have, you know, uh, falsely uh, raised money from investors uh, saying they're going to, you know, develop, they have, you know, COVID-19 uh, materials and they're going to be able to uh, sort of uh, make money by providing those. And I did hear of um, a class action or two against uh, uh, pharmaceutical companies that made, um, you know, some wild claims about, uh, you know, very quickly developing vaccines. Um, I'm not sure if the SEC uh, followed up, though, on those cases. They may be looking at them um, as well, you know, I don't know if we'll see more cases. You know, the stock market has generally held up pretty well, surprisingly, and I think that might be why we don't see as much private. You know, maybe we would see more private litigation if uh, things had, um, you know, remained south a little bit uh, longer. Um, but with with a recovery, you know, it, it might be that some some companies are able to sort of uh, hide their fraud a little bit more. Well, th those pharma cases sound like mere puffery to me, Jim, but I guess we'll have to wait and see. Nice. Uh, yeah. <laughs> All right. So this this next topic we could literally talk about for the rest of the episode. So just a reminder, this is the lightning round. Chris, you know what's coming. 
regulation best interest. Make uh, it quick. <laughs> All right. So we've actually heard a fair amount about Reg BI and the Biden administration. There are calls to completely jettison the rule and start over. And then there have been some calls, as you mentioned earlier, Karen, to, to simply give it teeth. So what should we expect? Jim, Reg BI. You know, I'd like to see how it's enforced and how it works uh, before uh, seeing whether it should be replaced by a stronger fiduciary rule. You know, I think the argument against it is simply, you know, if you just disclose that I'm offering you products that my company has some, uh, you know, some tie to that, you know, the in- investor is not really going to know what to do with that information. And so that might be a reason why you have more of a substantive fiduciary rule. Karen, what's going to happen with Reg BI? My thought, and maybe is not even specific to Reg BI, but I, I think that in the wake of this administration, the outgoing administration, there will be so many calls to reduce conflict of interest, to increase transparency, to minimize any appearance of sort of corruption or you know underhanded dealing that I do not think there will be the appetite to jettison a reg BI unless as sort of Jim said there's some way to make it um, sort of more robust with sort of a broader fiduciary idea behind it. So I don't see that going anywhere. I think there's definitely going to be sort of this idea of cleaning house a little bit. And so I think there will be certainly more calls for uh, transparency. So I, I think Reg BI is probably here to stay in what form? I don't, I don't know. Well, from the advisors to the investors, let's talk about private offerings. The SEC recently amended its definition of accredited investors to allow more people to invest in private offerings. However, some people want President Biden's SEC to limit retail investors' access to private markets. What should we expect, Jim? Well, I would personally um, believe that the monetary threshold for being an accredited investor is is too low, and um, it's not, you know, indexed to inflation. Um, I think it should be higher. I think there are a lot of dangers in um, these private placements that um, are problematic for investors who don't have the savvier ability to uh, distinguish between good and bad investments. And I hope we see some, uh, some limitations uh, with respect to uh, the credited investor uh, definition. And I, you know, I, I think that there should be a, you know, a starker difference between private placements and uh, public offerings that that line should be, uh, that should, that line should be maintained. What do you think, Karen? Do you agree? I'm going to break with Jim on this one a little bit. And I, well, and I will, but I'll hedge by saying, I think the Biden administration might as well. Um, uh, I think there's going to be additional access to capital being offered. I think, you know, the drumbeat of sort of the Sanders, Elizabeth Warren sort of idea of the delta between the haves and have nots and how problematic that is. I think we will see ways to, um, to, to make that gap get a little bit smaller and so, you know, out of that sort of sense of, you know, the Jobs Act from 2012, this idea of get more people in this game, there's there are too many, too many roadblocks to have sort of your average, you know, literal Joe from Scranton get in the game. Um, and that that is creating sort of two different Americas. I, I, I think there'll be some pushback on that from this administration. 
We're going to talk technology in our last two elements of this lightning round, starting with cybersecurity. For a long time, the SEC and other agencies have treated companies who suffer cybersecurity attacks as victims more so than as negligent in the operation of those efforts. Should we expect the SEC to continue its lenient approach to cybersecurity enforcement? Jim, what do you think? It's sort of a, um, a reality that you know companies are going to face uh, cyber attacks. And um, I think that there's an argument that um, you know we should be sympathetic to their uh, situation and their plight. On the other hand, you might think at some point uh, we're going to hold companies accountable for developing internal controls and other defenses against these sorts of attacks. And uh, to the extent that they, you know, companies are not investing sufficient resources and not clearly disclosing. Um, the risks of cyber attacks, then um, we, you know, I've s- seen some private uh, litigation that has uh, moved past the motion to dismiss stage involving cybersecurity issues. Although, you know, you know, these are kind of, um, I think one of them was, uh, uh, you know, sort of a data company, companies where this is really going to affect their business model. Um, and so, you know, maybe the SEC will follow suit and uh, also bring you know, disclosure violation cases when uh, you have uh, a company's business that, um, you know, that that uh, is affected by such an attack and they uh, didn't disclose that risk clearly enough to investors. Karen, same to you. Do you think that the cybersecurity discussion falls in internal controls issues that you talked about before, or are these companies just victims of bad actors? I, I think we're going to see, like Jim said, more on this, you know, you should have known a little bit of this isn't entirely new. I say that knowing that, of course, the, the hacks and the cybersecurity attacks will only get more sophisticated. So it is a high bar to hold companies to be able to repel things that, you know, they can't even have, have imagined at this point. But, you know, it's not new um, in terms of knowing that you need to know um, what these risks are. And so I do think the shift will get to be a little tougher on how could you let this happen. Um, depending, I think, again, on how uh, what the results of the hack are. You know, if you have someone who hacks every credit card visa or something that, you know, that might determine sort of how heavy the SEC comes down um, based on sort of the... the uh, the amount of fallout from these type of attacks. Well, I think that covers almost every topic on the uh, securities enforcement regulatory landscape, Kurt, albeit in record time. Yeah, I think we came pretty close. Thank you to Karen and Jim for joining us. It's been a great conversation. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the Insecurities Podcast, and a special thanks to our guests, Karen Woody of the Washington and Lee School of Law and Jim Park of the UCLA School of Law. As always, we want to hear from you regarding your thoughts, comments, and topics for discussions on future episodes of Insecurities. Please use the hashtag InsecuritiesPod on Twitter or LinkedIn to join the conversation. You can find me at CPA, And I'm at Enforce underscore Update. Be sure to subscribe, rate, and review the Insecurities Podcast wherever you listen, whether that platform went public through an IPO or a direct listing. Be well, everyone, and we'll see you next time. Thanks for tuning in.
Thanks for listening to Insecurities, a podcast from PLI, the Practicing Law Institute. PLI is a nonprofit provider of authoritative professional services training and continuing education. In an increasingly complex business environment where intricate corporate structures reign, Insecurities can help you make sense of it all. A special thanks goes to the producer of Insecurities, Daniel Pinitz, as well as hosts Chris Ekimoff and Kurt Wolf. For more information about PLI's SEC Institute, or to view hundreds of hours of fresh and relevant on-demand programming covering changes within the security sector, visit pli.edu membership and sign up for a privileged membership. These recorded materials are designed for educational purposes only. This podcast does not constitute legal, audit, tax, consulting, business, financial, investment, or other professional advice, and it does not create an attorney-client relationship. Please consult a qualified professional advisor before taking any action based on the information herein. Furthermore, the views and opinions expressed in this podcast are solely those of the individual participants. PLI, Troutman Pepper, and RSM do not make any representations or warranties, express or implied, regarding the contents of this podcast. Users of this podcast may save and use the podcast only for personal or other non-commercial educational purposes. No other use, including without limitation, reproduction, retransmission, or editing of this podcast may be made without the prior written permission from PLI.